Oh, hello, hello. This is Dwayne Lester on The Dwayne Lester Show. This is the only show on the internet where the uh, logic and analysis is as infallible as my hair. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. We have three great interviews today. Speaking with uh, United for Missouri's Carl Bearden about the push in Missouri to use taxpayer money to build a new football stadium in St. Louis. You know, they're still paying for the old football stadium. Things not that old. It was built in 1995. Now, the Democratic governor and the Democratic mayor want a new football stadium because Stan Kroenke's taking his Rams back to L.A. We'll talk to him about that a bit. I also have an interview. Well, not an interview so much, but Michael Turk is going to be here, and he's going to tell us a story, and it is it is hilarious. All right, It's a story about the guy who hooked up well, I'll just let Michael Turk tell. You'll want to hear this. But first, uh, I have started a new gig. I don't know if you if you know, know this or not, but I am now the senior contributor at a website called Same Page Nation. And Same Page Nation is different than a lot of the, the, the regular blogs. We're, we're doing something uh, uh, unique, quite unique over at Same Page Nation. And I wanted to bring on one of the founders, Kim Paris, to talk about what we're doing over there and and really how it differs from a place like a hot air or even you know a, a gateway punnet or doinglester.com so she was kind enough to sit down and we talked about samepagenation.com for about 10 minutes here it is kim paris thanks for joining us Dwayne lester thanks for having me uh, so same page nation that's uh, it's an interesting name it's an interesting concept tell us what you're doing over there or what technically we're doing over there there you go. You know, we like the name. It made sense to us, although we may uh, become sick of, of it, right, when we talk amongst ourselves. Are we on the same page with it? Yes, we're all on the same page. Are you on the same page? We're all same pagey. Um, but it really is descriptive. Uh, SamePageNation.com. Uh, you know, we all come from different uh, political positions or, or tribes, if you will. Uh, you're well-known. Folks know... Uh, where you come from, I'm uh, close to that. You know, I jumped into politics on behalf of Herman Cain as his uh, state campaign director in Missouri. But that said, you know, increasingly it's evident that, that those tribal IDs are dividing us. So Same Page Nation came about um, to, A, inform uh, on topics that folks need to know about that aren't always covered, um, and to form a different kind of community. You know, we contend, and and I know you're in agreement, and it's so exciting to have you with us, uh, but we contend that you don't have to agree on abortion or gay marriage or even if God exists uh, in order to work together to hold our, our government accountable and, and to fight crony capitalism and protect to fight, our liberties to fight what? in our hometown. To fight what? Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Ah. <laughs> okay, back up. There is no such thing as crony capitalism. Now you're it is talking. an oxymoron, like the French resistance. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Cronyism. <laughs> Now you're talking. I am educated by by 
your 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 contribution. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's very funny. That made me laugh. I like that. <laughs> See? So Paradigm Ship, check it out. Samepagenation.com. Brand new today. Dwayne's blog, video blog. So but you can't argue with the premise, right, Dwayne? Right. These are things that we can agree on. Right, and, and basically, if I if you, if I can expound on what you're saying is, see, here I am, uh, I am a uh, an evangelical Christian, believe in Jesus as my Savior. I I uh, go to church, you know, every Sunday. If I can't drive there, I will attend in my house and, and listen. So it is a big part of my life. But if I know someone who is a, is an atheist or even an anti-theist, though I can work with them on something like um, ending the war on drugs. Right. right. So that's what it's Precisely. about. And when you go to samepagenation.com, you'll see under the op-ed category, uh, we're, we're new, we're launched now in just a few weeks, and, and we went forth into this wilderness. Nobody's really doing what we're doing. Um, with some op-eds, they're really against type. You know, that Christian evangelical William Temple. When people see his picture, they'll know him if they're conservative at all. You know, he's the Tea Party uh, uh, iconic figure that's going to be in the textbooks on that chapter long after we're all gone. And and he makes the case for how he's same page. Uh, we have uh, Gina Roberts, who is transgender, um, and she's Tea Party. That's against type, and she makes the case for how she is on the same page on these other things. Uh, and, and you know, the other part of this, and I know you're also enthused about this, it's probably the most exciting part of Same Page Nation to me, personally, um, as co-founder with Eve Young, is the activism piece, right? Because it's not enough to just... Uh, uh, share information or gin up passion, which is what the the ideologues out there on the internet are doing. But but to move the ball down the field, and that brings us to our direct democracy piece, which is on the website right hand corner. And when this was evolving, and I was pitching it to my friends because I have all sorts of, of friends in different walks of life, and I was pitching it to one of my um, evangelical Christian friends. Right, or conservatives in LA. It's like uh, the lion. He, he should be tagged probably in track. But uh, when I was pitching this idea to him, initially he was like, no, no way. Sword and, and if you're not going to get after abortion and you're not going to get after gay marriage, you know, I, I, I can't have anything to do with it. And he said, oh, and by the way, quit referring to it as social issues. Well, I made a note of that because he was absolutely right. Uh, that diminishes how he feels about those issues. Uh, so we don't, we don't refer to them as social issues, but I digress. So I told him I respect that, but those are his number one and his number two issues, abortion and gay marriage. So, but what if... Uh, your third most important issue, which is sanctity of the vote. What if I told you there was a citizen's petition initiative getting started in your hometown to address that? 
the, the vote. Uh, would you be willing to work with atheists, gays, whatever? Perhaps a woman that just had an abortion. Would you work with them on that issue? And he thought about it, and he said yes, he would. He just never thought about it that way. So that's what we're bringing to people. Um, good information uh, on the basic principles that should bind us all, staying out of the weeds where possible, uh, and and then giving folks an opportunity to actually get engaged and make a difference. You know, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. There are certain things that, that can be handled on the very local level, and one of them, for example, is, uh, is red light cameras. I mean, we see these things all over the country. I don't know anybody who likes them, except, you know, bureaucrats and, and uh, government types. But everybody hates them, and it's something that could be handled very easily on the local level. And we actually have a form there on the site that if you, if you are interested in doing something like this, let us know and we'll help you. That's right. We are working uh, with great folks here behind the scenes that this is what they do. We will be bringing to people as many stories uh, as we can about where local activism is making a difference. Uh, and, and, you know, we will just send you an e-book on how to do it. And this is one-on-one mentoring of how to get stuff on the ballot. And, you know, the, the most exciting thing about that is most folks experience with a petition, that word, should be on our banned word list, um, is either online data mining, right? Sign this petition and, you know, demand that Trey Gowdy hold Hillary's feet to the fire, blah, blah, blah. Or feeling accosted outside of the post office or the Walmart on an issue that you really don't know anything about. And I'm not sure I believe anybody's version of what they tell me is about. And furthermore, I'm not inclined to give up my information anymore like that. So, People don't understand. And, and they're still the first response when there's something we don't like is to turn to government and lobby their legislators, uh, even the city council, and expect, you know, Big Daddy to do it for you. The beauty of the petition initiative is you're taking those third rail issues and you're going around them and you put it on the ballot and let's have a vote of the people. Okay. We're not going to waste our time or our money or energy electing you on the promise that you are going to, you know, lead the charge on our, our concern. How many times have we been disappointed? Local level, state, federally, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys vote for me and you send me your money. I will, I will get this done. Uh, I don't want to overtalk it, but it can't be emphasized enough. Uh, not only can we not count on legislators typically to, to do that, but even if they went into, uh, their term committed to getting through this group's, uh, concerns, by the time, if they get it out of committee, and then it goes to the state legislature, let's say, and then it has to get uh, approved by the governor. If it's vetoed, it has to be. And, and in any case, oh, it makes your head spin thinking about all the hoops it has to go through. In any case, you can be darn sure that the final legislation will not even remotely resemble what it was that was brought to committee, that you and your group lobbied this, this individual uh, to champion on your behalf. So uh, there's the problem right there. Keep it simple. We will help you. 
and, and the legislation, if it's being done in other cities, might already be written and just needs to be tweaked somewhat for your locale. Uh, and actual one-on-one -on -one mentoring with folks that are experts on how to run a petition drive and how to get these things done. Samepagenation.com. Samepagenation.com. Uh, a lot of good stuff up there now. Kim, thanks for taking the time to join us. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm just so glad to have you on board. Have a great day. As I mentioned earlier in the show, St. Louis, Missouri is probably going to lose the St. Louis Rams. Now, personally, I'm a Chiefs fan. I don't care. Bye. Okay, go back. Never liked you being in St. Louis anyway. Uh, the Rams belong in L.A., the Cardinals belong in St. Louis, and Arizona needs to come up with their own mascot. Okay, just, I don't get the Arizona Cardinals. It's, somebody try to explain that to me. But, they want a new stadium, even though the team's probably going to leave. And I, I've laid this out over at Watchdog, the fact that they are probably going to leave. Not because St. Louis isn't a good football town, but because Stan Kroenke stands to triple the value of his football organization just by moving it to L.A. Right now, it's worth little under a billion dollars. He moves it to L.A., specifically Inglewood. It becomes a two or three billion dollar organization. So I don't think that building a new stadium is going to dissuade him from giving up a couple billion dollars. Just doesn't make sense. Nonetheless, politicians in Missouri are adamant about building a new stadium despite the fact they haven't even paid for the old one. United for Missouri's Carl Bearden sat down and explained to us why this is wrong and gives us kind of the whole story about what's going on. Carl, thanks for joining me, man. Well, thanks for having me on, Dwayne. We appreciate it. appreciate all the work you do. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it, it sends a pile up sometimes, doesn't it? it? It just doesn't stop in this state some days. <laughs> Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a good thing and a bad thing because the fact it doesn't stop means there's still a lot of bad stuff going on, but uh, never give up on the good fight. That's true. That's true. Now, St. Louis, um, I'm a Chiefs fan, so I have no dog in this hunt as far as the Rams are concerned, but there are a lot of people down there who, uh, on you know, they're on both sides of the issue, and some of them want a new stadium because they think that this is going to keep uh, Stan Kroenke from moving the Rams. Now, from what I've read... Before we even get into the, the fiscal issues of, of, of building a new stadium and publicly financing it, it's my understanding that he's just looking to sell the Rams and moving it to L.A. would make the team worth more. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's different projections, but, you know, there's projections that it will increase the worth of the team uh, by almost double. Uh, and so, um, you know, Stan, to, to my research and all the public records that exist that I'm aware of, Stan has never asked for a new stadium in St. Louis. Wait, he hasn't even and asked so for a new stadium? Fact, no, no. He's, you know, he's moving full speed ahead out in Inglewood. He's got a plan that doesn't require any, zero, public funding to build. Uh, and so uh, he, he's never asked for this new stadium. And this is more... Uh, of the uh, do-gooders in St. Louis, and we got to keep it because uh, our economy will go bust, which is totally false if we don't keep an NFL team in St. Louis. So, we, aren't aren't, uh, aren't you guys still paying on a stadium down there? Is I mean, the Edward Jones Dome's well, not paid for, is it? 
Well, when you call, when you say uh, you guys, that's you because <laughs> state taxpayers pay twelve million dollars a year on bonds for the Edward Jones Dome, and that will not be paid off until twenty twenty one. And on top of that, St. Louis County taxpayers are being double charged because they're not only paying their share of the twelve million, they're paying six million dollars toward the bonds, and St. Louis City taxpayers are also paying six million dollars toward the bonds. So there's a total of twenty four million dollars a year that go toward the Edward Jones Dome. Now about four million of that or so is for maintenance but uh, the vast majority of that is toward bonds that aren't even paid off yet. And now we want to build a new stadium uh, to to further lengthen those payments. And it's not even a, a dome. From what I've seen of this new stadium, no, it's, it, it's open air, so you wouldn't be able to really hold anything in there in the wintertime uh, other than football games. Yeah, so it's an open air, football, uh, and there's some talk about a major league soccer, you know, build it and they will come. Uh, and that's the, really the scary thing about the stadium proposal. So every, the soccer team, that's the what scares you? The first scary thing is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so soccer team that, that actually Dave Peacock, who was, who was one of Governor Nixon's two guys putting this together, has a vested interest. He, wa- he wants to bring the, the uh, major league soccer to St. Louis and he wants to be the owner. So he's got a little conflict, I think, but, but that's, you know, gone unnoticed for the most part. But, you know, it's an open-air stadium, uh, so you have soccer, uh, you, you have the football. You, you're not going to have any concerts out there. But, uh, hey, we still got the Jones Dome. Maybe we can have the concerts inside. Yeah, I mean, we're still paying for it. We might as well use it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and there's projections on the Jones Dome because the maintenance, you know, as it, as it ages, uh, the maintenance needs uh, continue to increase. And right now, they're projecting a shortfall in the very near future of having enough money to even maintain the Jones Dome. But don't worry about it. You know, somehow we'll come up with more public money to take care of it. Now, there were recent uh, upgrades to Kansas City's Arrowhead Stadium, which is much older than the uh, Edward Jones Dome. Right. Was that publicly financed also? But it was only financed. Actually, go go back to the very beginning of Arrowhead and, and of Kaufman. Both those were built with public funds, but they were built with public funds from Jackson County taxpayers and and the people coming in paying sales tax in Jackson counties. So there was never uh, state bonds issued uh, on uh, the Arrowhead or Kaufman. Uh, Those were all locally financed projects. Now, they did get state tax credits, uh, but they did not get state bonds like we're talking about on the Jones Dome and the new stadium. So uh, when you come shop in Jackson County, you're paying an added sales tax that goes to support uh, the refurbishment of Arrowhead Stadium. All right. All right. Well, the big uh, the big argument is, is that St. Louis has to remain an NFL team. I've heard uh, your good friend Jay Nixon say that a couple times, that uh, that St. Louis has to be an NFL team. It is an NFL team, and at the end of the day, uh, they're NFL ready. How big of an impact would it be if the Rams left? There would be little to no impact. Uh, the economics, uh, there was a, a study at uh, Olin School of Business at Washington University there in St. Louis, and it showed that the impact of the NFL leaving St. Louis is uh, is nominal. It's, it's barely would be felt. You know, the Cardinals and the Blues uh, generate a lot of income uh, for the region, but the Rams don't have this big fan base, you know, that come from all over the country like Green Bay does or, or the, even the Cowboys. Uh, so aside from some really hardcore fans in California, they don't have people coming in every weekend to stay in hotels and stuff because they follow the Rams team. And, and people do get confused. 
uh, they think this is really about the Rams. This is really about building a stadium uh, with public funding that most of Missouri, 70% of Missourians do not want a new stadium in St. Louis if it's going to be publicly funded. And that number stays about that same uh, rate, 70%, in the St. Louis region when it talks about public funding. So we're talking about Jay Nixon trying to rescue his legacy because we know what a good job he did in Ferguson. Right. Uh, and he has to reclaim his legacy, and that's what the stadium really is all about. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Look, the, the other statement that you hear a lot is that a new stadium in St. Louis will really um, bring jobs and will it'll just totally help this downtown area where they're going to they're going to build this. And, and that historically has not been accurate anywhere it's been done, has it? No, if you look over, you know, the studies have done in the in the past 20 plus years, uh, they clearly indicate that publicly funded stadiums do not have a return on investment for the public who are paying for them. And, you know, the jobs issue, uh, there are eight games uh, during the season, two uh, preseason games. So you're not talking about a lot of, of activity, and they're only part-time jobs because they only occur 10, 10, uh, 10 times a year. So what you're talking about, is making a significant investment and obligation of the public, unwillingly, by the way, because if, if there was a vote, it would fail, uh, into, into something that will benefit a precious few. They've really done their, uh, their best to keep the public out of this, haven't they? They have. They've, you know, as, as you're probably aware, there have been at least two lawsuits that, uh, uh, that they waged, and I think St. Louis City... Um, through their case, if you will, because the uh, regional sports commission that runs Edward Jones Dome that wants to build a new stadium sued the city over a an ordinance passed by the people. This was a, an initiative passed by the people in St. Louis City to require a vote for any new funding of a stadium. Uh, St. Louis City kind of pretended to defend that ordinance, and recently a judge said, no, uh, that does not work. You don't have to have a vote. And so that'll be appealed, but... Uh, they're doing everything they can to keep the people from having a say in building a new stadium. That is staggering, man. It, it, it just blows my mind still. That I'm confused about where this even came from. If, if Kroenke didn't ask for it, because it was my understanding, I don't know where I read this, but it was my understanding that, that Kroenke said, you either build me a new stadium or I'm leaving, but you're saying he'd never asked for any of this. No, so I think where that confusion comes from, that in the Edward Jones Dome lease, which, which if you look at that lease and you were the Rams' owners at the time, which actually Georgia Frontier was, was the main owner. Uh, Stan was part of the ownership team then, but she was the lead. Uh, you will see that the Rams got almost everything, if not everything, that they asked for. Uh, I mean, they get all the naming rights. They get the concession tax. They get, they get just about everything that there is to, to get. Uh, and, and the public actually gets nothing except this dome that's there. And so one of the provisions in that contract was that, and I think it was about the 15th year or, or so of the lease, that the Edward Jones Dome had to be in the top 25% of NFL stadiums. Well, you know, there have been a lot of new stadiums built, a lot of whiz-bang stuff put in them. And so naturally, the, uh, the uh, Jones Dome does not fit in the top 25%. In order to bring it up to 25%, then you'd have to spend $700 million to do that. And that's where Stan says, that's the lease. The lease says, if you're not willing to do that, then I have the ability to go on a year-to-year lease and leave any time after that. 
And so I think that's where the confusion comes in. Stan never asked to uh, to build a new stadium, uh, but uh, he did try to exercise the provisions of the lease that re- that required them to uh, to improve the Edward Jones Dome. It seems to me that this is just so convoluted. We we have we have taxpayer money who that is on the line. Taxpayers don't have a say in it. Right. You, ha- you have an owner right. Right. who simply wants to move his stadium, and, and it doesn't sound to me like whatever we do is going to change that. So is this just just right. kind of crony cronyism going on here? The, you know, the push, oh. the right. idea to, to that they're going to keep these Rams, they're going to keep the team. So you've got all the fans in St. Louis who are who are out there rallying for this, but the whole time it seems like the people who are who are foisting this upon us know that one way or the other, the Rams are likely going to leave. I don't get it. Yeah. So it's worth, right. Well, it's worse than that. So, so the Rams obviously are the current tenants and they are the, they are the leveraging rod that, that, that they try to use to keep them there, even though Stan doesn't want to stay. So the real scary thing about this is that they intend, their intention is to build a new stadium, whether the Rams are here or not. And then that's what they did with the Edward Jones Dome. Uh, They built it without having a team. Then they they lured the Rams here by giving them everything under the sun. And so the the real intent, and and they've even said it, uh, if not outright, at least subtly, that even if the Rams leave, we need an NFL stadium, new stadium here, and we will attract the new team. And that's the bottom line. So their intent is to make the public pay for a new stadium, whether the Rams stay or not. And there's, it's staggering. What well, one thing that I found uh, almost incredulous was when the mayor Francis Slay, mayor of St. Louis, came out and said that we need to yeah. do this, and we may, you know, we need to do it even if we don't get the, our money back on it. And I, I don't understand the right. logic there. Why would you? He, he would not do that with his own money. He would not say, "Look, I need to, I well, need to invest in this, even if I don't get a return on my investment." That doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, that. That's the key. That's the key. He's not spending his own money. He's spending everybody else's money, including all of his constituents, and then he wants all of us to spend our money to support that. And and so the the Olin School of Business uh, article or study in that same article, uh, it's really about uh, St. Louis pride would be hurt far more than its economy. And so this is more about pride, about social standing, if you will, uh, in the country. Uh, and the fact of it is. You know, St. Louis has a lot of problems. Its homicide rate is is skyrocketing and soaring. It'll probably be over 200 uh, this year. Uh, and St. Louis has a lot of problems. Not having a new NFL stadium is not one of them. And, and it's misdirected. It's a subterfuge. It's a distraction to fixing real problems in St. Louis, in my opinion. Yeah, they need to. They, they, you're right. They do have problems. And, and uh, they're a tech city that refuses to let Uber in. You know, but they put their priorities on yeah. building a stadium they don't really need. It's it's unbelievable. Carl, I appreciate you right. taking the time to break this all down for us. Is there anything that I missed? Anything that you that people need to know that I didn't ask? Well, you know, there there are a lot of different things. They can go to unitedfromazero.org and search for myth and half truths, and they'll find a lot of data on there. You know, one of the half truths or myths is that uh, you know the player salaries pay for the don't for the uh, bonds they don't, and so. 
you know, most people are, are pretty savvy today. They know that when something uh, doesn't smell right, it's not right. And, and they need to understand they are right on point here, that there is nothing to be gained by the public in building a publicly funded stadium. And, and they just need to make sure that their legislators, that their governor and everybody else knows that that's the case. Unitedformissouri.org. Carl, you're on, a, on the Twitters also, right? That's correct. United, the number four MO, United for Mo. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to break it all down for us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dwayne. We appreciate it. Keep up the good work. I'll do my best. It's now time for one of my favorite segments of this podcast. It's time for Tell Me a Story. Michael Turk has a very good story to share with you, and it involves Dan Quayle and a computer. It's, trust me, you'll want to hear this one. Michael Turk, thanks for joining us. You got it. Thanks for having me. So before we get into your story, which sounds really killer, first of all, just take a minute to, to talk about yourself, brag about yourself a bit, and tell us what you do, who you are, and uh, how you came to be in that situation. Sure. Um, I'm a political consultant. I've spent about uh, 20 years working on you know political campaigns, and and um, uh, especially in my early days, um, kind of bounced around you know from from uh, state party politics to political campaigns um, at just about every level. And uh, in 1999, I got uh, hired to um, come on board uh, to manage all of the internet and uh, networking operations for uh, Quail 2000, which was uh, Dan Quail's uh, campaign for president. Um, I've also worked, you know, over the course of the years for uh, George Bush. I was the e-campaign director for the Bush 04 reelect, and then also worked with Fred Thompson. So it's my third presidential campaign was was Thompson. Uh, my first was Quayle, and then it was just a fantastic experience, uh, both with uh, the vice president, who's just like you know one of the nicest guys I've ever met, as well as with um, the uh, the campaign staff that we had there. Just a tremendous group of people. Now, how long did his campaign last in 2000? Was I, I'm trying to remember back then. I don't. I don't. I remember him running, but I don't remember him having uh, much of a presence. Was he big in the primaries? Help me remember that. Well, no. Unfortunately, the uh, I came on board the campaign in February of 1999, and uh, and he withdrew from the race in September, um, sort of just after the Iowa straw poll. Uh, the the straw poll uh, unfortunately got rid of a lot of candidates. There were. There were a lot of people who um, sort of uh, withdrew between the time of the straw poll and the time of the first primaries. You had Lamar Alexander, who was running at the time, and you had uh, Vice President Quayle. You had Elizabeth Dole. Uh, Steve Forbes was running. Uh, George Bush, of course, uh, who ended up getting the nomination. McCain, Alan Keyes. There was, uh, you know, then sort of like today, you had a, a very crowded field in the primary because it was um, an open seat, and so it attracted a lot of people. Uh, by the time you got into the primaries, most of what was left was was pretty much Alan Keyes, John McCain, and George Bush. Right, all right. I remember now. So, what what was it like working with uh, Vice President Quayle? Uh, he was fantastic. Was just just absolutely a great guy. Um, the you know I, I've, I've told people um, you know privately over the years. At the time that I was watching the um, the, the returns come in, I was in sort of a, the, the library there at Ames, Iowa, during the straw poll. And one of the other candidates, uh, who will remain nameless, came in and was standing behind me with a couple of his staff. And the, the results started to come in. And it, it, it wasn't very pretty for most of the candidates. The, the top tier were really Bush and Forbes and Elizabeth Dole. They kind of ran away with, with most of the votes. And when you got down into the tier of, uh, you know, Gary Bauer and Quayle and Alexander and all of those folks, 
um, that there was there was sort of a significant difference between the top tier and the second tier. And one of the candidates in the second tier who was standing behind me when they announced the, the results of the, the straw poll, uh, I was waiting to send a press release, and we had two versions drafted depending on how well we did, and was had my back to the room so they couldn't see my Quail 2000 polo shirt that I was wearing. And when the results came in, he just lost it. The, the the candidate, you know, sort of started ranting about you know the the system and not working hard enough and everything else. But but Quail's response, you know, to this to the campaign staff um, when I when I got back over to where we were, was very much just you know. We tried. It didn't work out for us. Um, you know, we're going to, you know, kind of, you know, continue our efforts and, and push forward. Uh, and, and it was just, it was, it was you know, sort of just a really, real distinct difference in sort of the approach that, that both of the, the two candidates took. And I was always very impressed by the fact that, you know, Quayle understood, but the importance of it having been vice president, the importance of the political process. And at the same time, he also understood that, you know, it is a process and there's going to be winners and losers. And, and uh, he, you know, he kept that perspective and didn't, didn't really seem to, you know, let that, um, you know, cause him to, to, to get agitated the way that some might. So do you want to talk about what you're doing these days? Uh, so you know, about three years ago, I started my own company, um, largely outside of politics. We do uh, primarily issue advocacy work. Uh, we work for trade associations, corporates, nonprofits, uh, trying to help um, get their message out with regard to the uh, issue advocacy work that they do. Um, I've been doing a lot of campaign stuff, and I kind of eventually got to the point where one of the things that I realized is that we had elected a lot of candidates that you know I had had a lot of belief in. And, they had come to vote in ways that I didn't think was, you know, in line with uh, who I thought they were or where I thought they were on positions. And so I began to focus a lot of my efforts on the issue advocacy side of things to actually hold responsible the people that we do elect to make sure that they vote, you know, the way that, that I think that they should be voting. We work with um, associations that we align with philosophically so that we can try to advance the, the cause as opposed to advancing the person because the cause really is, is to me, what matters and making sure that, you know, that the, the, the policies that we enact are the, are the right policies. You know, we're seeing a lot of that more on the state level, too, where you have, you know, organizations who are focused on issue advocacy because very often people campaign as conservatives and then legislate as progressives and we need more people holding that those people accountable why do you why do you think mm -hmm. that is what 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 changes is it is it just a front when they're campaigning or is there something that happens when they get in office that that causes this change um you know i don't know honestly uh, i think it varies you know from person to person you know in one campaign that i had worked for uh you know probably two or three months after the end of the campaign i got a phone call from the candidate and they asked if they could have breakfast and you know sort of talk over things and so i went and met them and and uh, they said that they they really felt that they sort of owed me an apology because the the campaign that that i had been sold on which was um, you know, not it, it, it ended up being not being the campaign that we ran, but the campaign I was sold on. Uh, they said they really felt would have actually done uh, much better had they kind of stuck to the original principles and the original values that they wanted to incorporate in the campaign. But they had to let a lot of outside advisors sort of steer them away from that idea under the premise that, oh, well, you know, this is how you have to do it in order to get elected, and this is who you have to be in order to get elected. And they, you know, their advisors had sort of, um, they felt steered them wrong. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I was the one that was, you know, kind of continually banging my head against the wall, trying to get, um, you know, them to, to stick true to, to what we had originally set out before, you know, everybody else got involved in it. And, um, and, and they said that, you know, they, they felt that, that, that they had allowed that sort of Washington DC beltway pressure to kind of change who they were in, in terms of the campaign that they were running. And I think that happens a lot. I think that, campaigns get caught up in the this is how you have to do it to win and this is you know what is expected of you and so they they kind of you know go through those um those processes whether it, in fact it, it is actually aligned with who they are fundamentally as people or, or who they're you know what their beliefs are you know i i'm curious before we get to your story i want to ask you one question because i i see these these debates like we just saw the debate uh the presidential debate and you see state level debates too and a lot of them are um what's your position here on this issue but you never see a, a debate that's focused purely on principles and i, I would mm-hmm. love to i would love to see a debate where they come out and the first question to all the candidates is something like what is the proper role of a moral and just government? Do you think candidates would be prepared, I mean, to talk about their principles rather than policies or positions? Or would that catch them completely <laughs> off guard? Well, that's actually one of the things that I was really Im- impressed with in my conversations with Fred Thompson when he was running in 2007-2008 is uh, he was very responsive to an idea that we had sort of put forward, which was rather than having an issues section of his website, he wanted to have a principles section of his website. And rather than, than go out and talk about, okay, this is my you know 10-point plan for whatever particular issue, where frankly, talking about the budget, for instance, you can say, okay, I've got a 10-point plan for the budget, or I've got a 10-point plan for the economy, or 10-point plan for immigration. But the reality is it's, it's incredibly difficult to capture the complexity of those issues in 10 points. That's just, it's just not going to happen. And so as a result, you know, what I had, had had the thought when we were going through this is it would be so much better if you did exactly that. If you said, okay, this is how I perceive the role of government to be. This is what I think it should do and what I don't think it should do. For me personally, you know, the largest piece of what I think government should do is interstate, you know, regulation of interstate commerce and, uh, you know, provision of, of things like highways that cross, you know, across the country, that sort of thing. I don't think they should be involved in education. I don't think that they should be involved in the arts and the humanities and all those sorts of things. So for me, talking about the role of government makes a lot more sense. And I think that if candidates were to do that, even when you disagreed with a candidate's position, you could go back to their their principles and you could say, okay, I understand how within his articulated view of, of government, he arrived at this particular decision. I don't agree with it. I understand it, though. And I think that if candidates spent more, more time articulating their belief system rather than you know their, their policy positions, I think we'd be a lot better off. You know, before we get into the story, I have uh, Fred Thompson... I actually, I've uh, actually met him. I know you, that's no big deal to you, but uh, I helped Fred uh, hook up a webcam at his house. I was working for another organization, and uh, Fred does was doing these videos, and I went, over, what a great guy the guy is. Just so down to earth. Uh, he walks into the room, and he, he owns it. He's got that voice. But at, mm-hmm. no, at no point was Fred like, look, just hook it up and get out of my house. You know, he, he was very much, uh, we sat and talked about his dogs. Which was really cool. And uh, Fred is only one of two uh, 
people I've ever donated to. I gave him 25 bucks, and then the other one was Herman Cain, gave him 25 bucks. Immediately afterwards, they both got out of the race. So that reminds me, I have some other donation checks I need to send today. <laughs> um, so there was a uh, the website for a while, which was um, you know TV shows that jumped the shark and where exactly they jumped the shark. And one there was a subsection of that website that talked specifically about uh, particular actors and how when those actors join the show, it, it's almost like the kiss of death for any television show. The minute they, they hire one of them was the guy who played. Um, uh, what was uh, uh, Marcy's second husband on Married with Children? I can't think of what his name is offhand, but the the, the blonde guy and like when he joins a TV show, that's it. It's just yeah. game over. Like that show's dead. So <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. You feel <laughs> like when you make that, that you write that check and you're the kiss of death for the campaign. Yeah, yeah, and there's but some th- there's some campaigns right now that uh, that need a kiss of death. But let's <laughs> let's not get into that. Let's you know, look, we, go ahead. You're right on. On Fred, Fred was just a, a fantastic guy. Um, we one of the when we were over at the house one day early on in the campaign, we were um, getting ready to have a meeting to sort of discuss strategy, and uh, Fred was out in the backyard with their two kids, and they had this you know one of those little little tykes kind of plastic playhouses, and and Fred and, and their son Sam had climbed inside this this little plastic playhouse. And, and you know, all six foot six of, of Fred, you know, jammed into this little tiny kid's playhouse <laughs> and his head's just kind of peeking out the window. And uh, I had grabbed my phone and was shooting cell phone video of him playing with Sammy just kind of, you know, in, in, inside this tiny little house. And that was going back to what we're talking about, sort of how you position candidates. That was one of those great moments where it was just this very candid father playing with his son, didn't really care that, you know, there were people kind of gathered around, uh, didn't really care sort of what that image, uh, you know, conveyed or anything else. And, um, and we shot the video and we said this would be, you know, fantastic just to sort of share this with people so they get a sense of who Fred, the committed, devoted father is, as opposed to just Fred, the guy that they know from Law and & Order and that's running for president. And that was one of those moments where, you know, sort of the, the campaign advisors when we ran that up the flagpole and said, this is this great candid moment that people would really relate to. And they said, oh, no, we can't share that because, you know, he's jammed this great big guy jammed in this little house. It conveys that he's, you know, not right for the job. Da, 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 da. And we were like, that's that's ridiculous. But but that's the kind of stuff that ends up happening in campaigns. Now, do you think <laughs> we need to get to your story, but now we're on Fred Thompson and his great, uh, great conversation. Um, do you think Fred would have gone for that or would he would he have felt like he was maybe exploiting his children or coming off as perceived as, you know, as being a poser maybe, or, or setting that up? I, no, I think, I mean, I think that there's, you know, that there's always a possibility that you're going to get backlash from some critics. I think somebody's always going to, you know, to say that, Oh, this was staged or, Oh, this was, you know, um, you know, him pandering to the female vote or, you know, whatever the, the claim was that they might make. Um, but, and when you watch the video, I don't, I don't think you would come away with that at all. I mean, it was very clear that this was, you know, kind of an authentic moment. It would, it would have been very difficult to sort of stage that, you know, the way that it was. I think that the, you know, the authenticity of moments like that, and, and you see so much of this with with social media and video today. The authenticity of those moments is just, it's, it's really hard to to fake that. Right. Um, right. And you know, there there are some things you can fake the. 
you know, the, the, you know, random on the street sort of interview kind of stuff, that sort of thing, that's easy enough to fake. But when, you know, when it's just a, you know, somebody playing with their kid, you can kind of tell the difference between what's, you know, I like to think between what's real and what's, what's staged. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Let's get to your story now. You were working with the Quail campaign, right? And, and what happened? Well, so, so it was actually my first day on the job, and um, I came over the course of the, the campaign to realize that there was just a lot of misinformation and, you know, misperceptions about quail that were, you know, sort of, that we were still battling as a campaign. Uh, you know, there were um, you know, all sorts of references to, you know, the Murphy-Brown moment, to the, the potato incident, to all of these things that we were continually having to deal with. And so the campaign was kind of sensitive to, you know, playing into this, um, you know, this meme that the quail was somehow uh, a lightweight, which he absolutely was not. He was, he was a fantastic guy, very bright guy. And, um, and yet my first day on the job, a moment sort of happened with me that I thought was just absolutely probably my favorite moment in campaigns and also just sort of revealed what an authentic and, and really funny guy the vice president was. And I, I, come into the office that that morning and sort of was, you know, given the lay of the land by the staff there. And he was not in the office at the time because he was traveling and arrived later. And because we were in Phoenix, we were about three hours behind the DC time zone. And as a result, uh, during the summer, uh, as a result, we, we were just sort of off the schedule for what, you know, how DC worked. And so when everybody there was going home at, you know, at, uh, you know, six o'clock, we were wrapping up our day at like three or four because there were, you know, you weren't able to reach the reporters any longer and you weren't able to sort of, you know, interact with committee staff and stuff on, on the East coast. So at about five o'clock I was in our office and everybody had kind of, you know, taken off for the day. And I was milling about trying to, you know, get a lay of the land, still figure out um, part of my role was our networking operations, trying to figure out, you know, where all the pieces of the network, both within the building and, you know, our wide area network outside were. And, uh, and as I'm in the, the sort of executive offices, which are on one side of the building, Quail comes out and he's just sort of standing, staring at me. And my friend Steve Tomlinson, who was at the time our political director, who is now Father Steve Tomlinson, who was a, a, a priest in Nebraska, comes out of his office and he's sort of looking at me and he looks at the vice president and he looks at me and the vice president says to him, he says, Steve, he says, do you care to introduce me to this guy that's standing in the middle of our office or should I be concerned <laughs> that there's just somebody here? And he says, oh, he says, you know, Mr. Vice President, he says, I'm terribly sorry. He says, I thought maybe you had already met. And he says, this is Michael Turk. He's our, our new uh, IT and Internet guy. Um, he's going to be running all of our, you know, technical stuff. And he says, oh, great. You're the new computer guy. And I said, well, sure. Okay. <laughs> I don't like to bill myself as the computer guy, but all right, whatever. And uh, he when says, it's he the says, vice president saying it, when it's the vice president saying it, yes, yeah, sir, yeah, you I'm you the new computer guy. Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. It's just, <laughs> yes, sir, I'm the new computer guy. And so he says, uh, he says, great, can you come in here for a second? I said, sure. And so I walk into his office and there sitting on his desk, he's got what is, you know, probably uh, only a couple weeks old, one of the first sort of Sony Vio ultra thin laptops. And, uh, and he was um, using uh, AOL on it for his, uh, his personal correspondence at the time. And, uh, and he says, he says, can you, uh, he says, can you set this up so that it'll check the spelling on everything I send out? He goes, cause it's not currently doing that. And I can't find the setting for it. 
And, and for a moment I thought, is, is he messing with me with the spelling thing? Because, you know, the potato is, you know, still fresh in my mind. And, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, sure. And so I open it up and I go into AOL's preferences and I check the, the box for, you know, check you know, check spelling before sending and get it all set up. I said, there you go, sir. You're on. You're, there you go. And he says, great. He says, I'm so glad you were here to do that. He goes, the last thing I need is to send anything out of here with a typo on it. I'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> And, and I thought two things. I thought that that's absolutely true. That you know that that he got such a raw deal on so many things that to, to you know it really would have been on anything that went out with a typo. It would have received scrutiny that no other campaign received. But it was great that he just had such a sense of humor about you know what was you know one of the sort of fundamental knocks on him that a lot of people had and yet he had a great sense of humor about it years later to just say you know I'm, I'm I, I get it I get the scrutiny. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, if for me personally, it was just a fantastic moment because in my political career, I don't think I will ever have sort of a more iconic moment than having Dan Quayle ask me for spell check on his computer. It's just, <laughs> to me, that's, that's, it, it, it's such a great moment because it just, you know, it, 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 it really sums up politics in the sense that here's this totally innocent moment that, you know, that, that is due entirely to this crazy media environment. And yet here's this candidate who's been through the ringer on this. And yet he still has sort of the, the, the good humor to kind of joke and laugh about that. And it was just, it was a fantastic uh, a moment. And one of, one of my favorite memories from working in politics for 20 years now. That is an awesome story. Yeah. To be the guy who set up Dan Quayle's spell check. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that is a great story. Michael, thanks for taking the time to tell well, us that, man. Sure. You know, and it's actually kind of uh, funny because the, um, you know, the, there there have been so, so much, you know, there's been so many stories that have been written about, you know, all of those moments in, in campaigns and stuff. And, and uh, you know, the one thing that, that I really have treasured in, in my life in politics and campaign politics is actually, you know, having a chance to get to know and interact with some of the people behind those stories and, you know, the, the completely different perception that you have of, of them as people. And, and, uh, it's just, I, I've been very fortunate to do what I do and, and really enjoy doing what I do and, you know, happy to, to have a moment to share what, what I think is, is a, a very, you know, sort of great candid story about a great guy. Michael, where can people reach out to you? You're on the Twitters and the Facebook, right? I am uh, under uh, both Twitter and Facebook uh, at Michael Turk on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Michael Turk on Facebook. All right, cool. Well, Michael, again, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. I really, really appreciate it. That was a great story. Absolutely. Happy to do it. That's the show for this week. I want to take the time uh, before we go to thank all of my guests. Kim Paris from SamePageNation.com. Carl Bearden, Executive Director for United for Missouri. And, of course, how could we forget Michael Turk? What a great story that was. I mean, that is, that's that, that's something he'll never forget. Be the guy that set up Dan Quayle's spell checker. It's hilarious. This has been the Dwayne Lester Show. I'm Dwayne Lester. I want to again thank Wayne Dupree for letting me uh, take up some time on uh, War Radio, W-A-A-R Radio. What a, uh, what a, I don't know if you've looked at the, at the radio station lately. A lot of great shows over there. You should go over and check us out. And uh, maybe, I'm giving a lot of thought, maybe starting a live morning half-hour podcast uh, Monday through Friday, 7 a.m., thinking about it. Let me know what you think. Uh, I think it could easily be done. I'm usually done with my newsletter. 
by about 6.45. That would give me some time to get some stuff together and, and talk about the show. After all, I've been, uh, I would have been spending three hours doing show prep. So I should be able to do it. It's just a matter of uh, if you want it. Dwayne at DwayneLester.com. Send me an email. Let me know. But um, I think my heart's in it. I think we can do this. So until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester. Take care and God bless.